Welcome to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. And I'm Mr. Vosiliatis. Today we'll do a deep dive of the growth of cities in American culture from 1865 to 1900. Here we go. In the long You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well trained. He will fight savagely. We'll light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. We will accept nothing less than full victory. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. Well, the United States is known as a nation of immigrants for quite obvious reasons, but the key aspect of this moment in American history is how our population triples in that last half century of the 19th century. Um, 23.2 million in 1850, all the way up to 76.2 million in 1900. The 6.2 million immigrants are what fuel that growth. And the peak years are from the narrow decade of 1901 to 1910, a little bit later on. But this growth of immigration is largely... Um, as always, promoted by push and pull factors that contribute. And some of the push factors or the reasons why one uh, person would want to leave their country and come here would be based on uh, the economic conditions of their country. So, for instance, Germany in the 1840s are, are going to experience a lot of political um, upheaval, and it's going to displace many types of farm workers. It's going to be abject poverty, uh, and new technological advances are going to uh, pretty much make people get out of jobs. So in the cases such as in Germany um, and even parts of Scotland and Ireland, people are going to be uh, motivated by economic reasons to find a job. Um, even in the cities in Europe, you're going to find a lot of people finding that the idyllic rural life of America is quite appealing and they're going to want to take advantage of some of the policies of moving out to the West um, is, is, is better than their, 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 their situation in their own country. Um, and finally, the, the, the final push is really mainly because of religious persecution, particularly Jews in Eastern Europe from the late 1800s. You can even mention maybe the Irish Catholics, and uh, they're pushed out of uh, Northern Europe. Um, and when we talk about pull factors, what makes America the destination of choice for all these people? Some think of it as obvious, but really it's America's reputation. Right? We are always known as that political freedom that you could be as you want to be. You're not forced to be one thing or another, and religious freedom since the beginning of our country's inception. Um, but ultimately, economic opportunities are the driving force of this. If you're going to go one place to find work, or you know it's going to be guaranteed to you, America's the place, largely because of the settling of the West. There's an abundance of industrial jobs in the U.S. cities, and this is the perfect place and perfect time to come in there. Uh, the introduction of large steamships. This plays a crucial role in the fact that now it becomes much more inexpensive for one-way uh, passage. If any of you have seen Titanic, I always refer to it as the steerage of the ship is where many of the underclasses will be able to sneak on or maybe even buy their way on for a relatively inexpensive um, wage. And this makes it much more possible for millions of poor people to emigrate, where a previous generation it was much more of an expensive trip and people of a certain class would be required to make that trip. 
So um, not only do we examine kind of the push and pull factors of immigration, but what are the waves? Because there are going to be many different types of immigrants that come to America that kind of have a different experience. So the first or old wave of immigration kind of happened between anywhere between the 1820s until the 1880s. These groups largely come from Northern and Western Europe, the British Isles, Germany and Scandinavia, even Scots-Irish and Scotland. Uh, most of them are going to be Protestant, with the exception of the Irish and Germans uh, that are Catholic during this time. And at this time, uh, in the 1820s and 30s and even 40s, these groups, for the most part, were able to integrate into a rural uh, economy and a rural society. With the exception of the Irish that kind of stayed in cities, most of them were able to actually expand out west, particularly the Germans in the Midwest. Um, and then later, when we get to heavy industry, sometime around after 1890, or I should say the peak of industry, we're beginning to see a new form of immigrants take hold. Yeah, so the quote-unquote new immigrants are all those that arrive after 1890. And they're coming from different regions in Europe. That's why they classify it. It's not that none are coming right. from Northern and Western Europe. It's just more are coming from Southern and Eastern Europe. So you have Italians, Greeks, Poles, Russians. This group is unique because they're much more Catholic than previously uh previous waves of immigrants. You have the Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and many more Jewish immigrants in this era compared to previous ones. This group, unfortunately, are mostly pushed into crowded, poor ethnic neighborhoods in major cities. So many of the things now we refer to kind of um, pleasantly with like Little Italy or Chinatown. There used to be an old German town in Manhattan in certain regions of these areas where people settle and you can go to regions of New York City and find people from the exact town you were from in the homeland. So this was these ethnic neighborhoods helped these cities develop. But as we see throughout American history, as immigration peaks, so does there's res resistance to it. And there's a view that immigration is somehow contributing to what's wrong with any problems that are going on in society. So there is a nudge towards restric restricting immigration after these waves. And this is something that was not unique uh, by any sense in this era, but it's also something that was supported by many different groups, many diverse groups that you might not realize. Labor unions being one of them, many of them starting out in this era to protect the wages and um, uh, the employment of their uh, workers, feared that these employers would use the new immigrant, the new immigrants would be used really to depress wages and make strikes less successful. These are easily um, going to be capable of hired to make scabs and be strike breakers. Um, and for the first time in American history, we have nativist societies springing up. Um, the American Protective Association was openly prejudiced against all Catholics. In my class, I know we've seen some imagery um, about the way in which the Irish were depicted as the scum and somehow subhuman. And the same efforts to dehumanize natives, the same efforts to dehumanize African-Americans who were enslaved are also used against certain groups of immigrants, specifically the Irish. There's also a loyalty issue concerning some Catholics. It's the idea that if Catholics come here, they're probably going to be more loyal to some sort of leader all the way in Rome than necessarily our secular state. Keep in mind, although most of America are Protestants, um, there is no actual hierarchy to kind of follow. You have to do sola scriptura, reading the Bible of yourself. So a lot of the Protestant Christians during this time are going to look at Catholics as suspicious of not being loyal to the nation. And this mm -hmm. is where the uh, discrimination of the Irish Catholics kind of come into play. Um, another group of people that really 
really will want to promote the restriction of immigration are people known as social Darwinists. As we've learned, these type of people are going to take the actual theory of evolution and apply it to an industrialized society. And what they're going to argue is that a lot of these immigrants are biologically inferior to English and Germans or the Anglo-Saxons that came here previously. And if we introduce them into society by integration and marriages, they are going to dilute the, the gene pool and make our human species less capable of all the successes that we've experienced today. So this, there's a pseudo-racism that's involved in this, and this is where um, science kind of, or pseudoscience, I should say, um, kind of uh, it justifies this type of uh, oppression there and was an entire, discrimination. Yeah, there was an entire offshoot of science that was built to justify the current stature of imperialism uh, in Europe, and that pseudoscience was based on the premise of English Germans being superior to everyone else. So... Um, Going back, looking at things in terms of the first laws restricting immigration, the foundation of that in American history is the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882. It is the first major act of Congress to ever restrict immigration strictly on the basis of race or ethnicity. And this largely was hostility towards the Chinese people on the West Coast. Um, the railroad contributed a huge part to wor workers that are being used, that are, many are Chinese immigrants, as well as mining on the West Coast. So. Racism um, used to obviously um, depict these people as somehow a problem preventing the common man from reaching their success in the West as they should. And also there, there are restrictive policies that are happening even in places that we so-called so open, are open for immigration. Um, a lot of us kind of associate Ellis Island as a place of opportunity and the gateway for people to have the American dream. But um, in 1892, a lot of these new immigrants had to pass rigorous medical um, and very invasive examinations and also pay a tax before entering the United States. I'm sure some of you have even heard that some uh, names are going to be either purposely or by accident changed mm -hmm. to make it a little bit easier to kind of uh, pronounce and kind of uh, participate in this, in this society. It's quite possible possible that some of your own last names have been changed uh, as a result of your ancestors coming in here through Ellis Island. My name added an N and my uh, on my mother's side my grandmother came in in 1911 uh, when she was 14 years old I know through that. Ellis Island. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so today a hundred million Americans can trace their roots through Ellis Islands and again that, that's roughly statistic. one third of Americans. Yeah, yeah. that statistic is quite um, quite uh, powerful to, to hear, especially in, in our society um, and, and our current political climate. Um, by 1900, almost 15% of the American uh, population were made up of immigrants. So, um, I mean, so anyone not born in born America. Born in America, yeah. yeah. So uh, this, of course, had a huge impact on the political landscape as well as the uh, economic landscape with respect to labor. Okay, well, this process of urbanization that's been happening most of the second half of the 18, uh, 19th century um, creates this new offshoot of urbanization is now all of a sudden you have residential suburbs that are emerging. So the U.S. is very different than Europe. So wealthy people were not going to have these large estates in the countryside. Wealthy people wanted to stay relatively close towards the center of cities, um, largely because the abundant land was available at low cost. This also allowed many Americans to move out to the suburbs a little bit. We start to have railroads. Uh, we have the Long Island Railroad right now, but mm -hmm. the offshoot of that early on it was, think of the um, residential suburbs in this era are largely like Queens and Brooklyn to the Manhattan. It's not suburbs out here where we live in Nassau or Suffolk County, but uh, inexpensive transportation by rail made it possible to get into the city for where all the jobs were, low-cost construction homes. 
But also ethnic and racial prejudice is what pushes some people out. As more and more Irish and other ethnic groups are coming into the city, other people who have been here longer, white Protestants, are pushing and deciding to move out of the city. And this also creates a unique culture in America, this fondness for the quote-unquote American dream, privacy, detached individual homes rather than being part of an apartment building. So the uh, picket fence and the front lawn that you can all have uh, to take care of for your family to a sign of success, that concept, that cultural identity start to emerge in this era. And by 1900, suburbs, have, uh, suburbs excuse me, have grown up and every major city has one. And we become really the world's first suburban nation where the majority of the population is either in the city or shortly or nearly around it. So as some people are leaving the cities or are leaving like shortly uh, short distances away from the cities, I should say, because sometimes when we think of the suburbs, we think of Levittown and we think of these uh, places on Long Island. But when we talk about the suburbs, we're really um, talking about places like what we now consider the city. So mm-hmm. Queens city and now, Brooklyn yeah. and, and all that stuff. So uh, this is most popularly known in uh, um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic uh, Great Gatsby when they refer to the West Egg and the East Egg of, of the island. They're really referring to Queens and Great Neck. So um, those are the places that were once considered suburbs. East of that were all farmlands mm-hmm. with respect to Long Island history. So it just gives you some um, something to think about in terms of the relativity of the suburban development. Mm-hmm. Um, as people are leaving, though, the city itself is changing in terms of management. So there was a sense of private ownership of utilities. And what a utility is is usually water or sanitation or basic uses now, uh, for human beings to... Now we would think electricity would electricity be Electricity would be, yeah. Um, so basic um, services or um, uh, c- things that we need to kind of live. And, and back then, they were privately owned. And there's going to be lots of profit to be had for the city, but there's also going to be a lot of problems. If you have multiple companies competing for sanitation, some of them are going to be better than others. And there's going to be, obviously, as a result of competition in this type of area, there's going to be an increase in disease and crime and waste and water pollution, air pollution. There's no way of regulating the quality of these services, especially in the chaotic areas of the city in the late 1800s. So this is going to call for uh, the municipal uh, management of these utilities. So what municipal means is city-owned or regulated. And municipal water purification uh, sets in with policies. Sewer si- systems start to be in place. Waste disposals start to be proposed. Street lighting starts to happen on the taxpayer dollars. Police departments uh, even, even are going to be on the taxpayer dollar. Um, and we're all going to start to see this as an essential element of the success of a modern city, but we obviously we cannot allow private, the private sector to run them. Yeah, well, as this urbanization has happened over the course of the previous 50 years, we start to see a rise in what's called boss and machine politics. So although some are moving out to the suburbs, the influx of immigrants have really made the advent of the political machine possible, largely because those in politics in these cities start to utilize these new politi- uh, these new immigrant populations to their advantage. So it's really the consolidation of power in business had its parallel in urban politics, where you start to see major political parties completely organized and controlling um, 
every aspect of cities, and these are known as political machines. So you'd have a boss who's in charge of everything else, and they have top politicians. And when they dole out government jobs, it's similar to, you can think of the spoil system, where those who are in charge of something have the power to give out to their loyal supporters. Loyalty is rewarded. Tammany Hall in New York City was run by Boss Tweed. Tammany Hall is basically where the mayor would live. This is the greatest example of corruption we have. And he ruled in New York City for over 20 years in this era, largely because he, he took advantage of the immigrant boat. He made sure that every new immigrant coming onto the shores of New York City knew that he was on their side. And he provided them with the things that they couldn't get otherwise from the failing um, systems within the city that are rarely um, basically new in terms of the services that people would be needing. But the power centers that were used would coordinate businesses, immigrants, and any who are underprivileged and show them that the people that are going to be looking out for you are the, the, the machine politicians. So if you vote for them, they're the ones that are come by and bring you clothing when you're, when you're cold in the winters. They provide you food when you're hungry. And that it may not be um, a widespread program, but they're the ones that care about you. So these machines sometimes would use intimidation, sometimes use physical force to make people vote on election day. And corruption and how money was used to make sure these people did what they did was often part of the equation as well. So this plays into how successful it could happen, and largely New York City is known for it most. And, and while there's a, a lot of negatives uh, that can be associated with the political machines, um, you know, they're, they're very adept in managing the competing social and ethnic uh, groups of the city. And, and as Mr. Colbin has mentioned, they did create some sort of crude form of a welfare for newcomers and immigrants by offering them things like apartments and food and jobs. And of course, the negatives we can see are going to be graft and corruption, millions of taxpayers dollars might be stolen. In the 1860s, 65% of public building funds end up going to Boss Tweed and his cronies. But that, that all being said, there are things um, and political machines and leaders in these political machines that have actually utilized this to actually get things done. Hmm. Uh, what we will learn in one of the red books, the documents in one of the red books, is that some of these leaders, this is the only way to accomplish some of the tax in, uh, tasks in a very, very complicated uh, society such as uh, these urban areas. So um, sometimes these political machines can be used for good. So it's a matter of just who we're looking at and yeah. who we're talking and about. And the essence of corruption is those that are in politics not to serve but to benefit themselves personally. But as Mr. V mentions, there was no way other than that to do business in some cases. And people were taken care of but who can make a profit while also having power? And that's what usually was said. So and we look at this era, um, reform era that we looked at earlier in the 1800s largely came out of the Second Great Awakening. Well, industrialization brings up another era of reform, um, largely because people start to look at the problems in urban areas, look at those in desperate poverty, looking at all this, uh, these devastating circumstances for a lot of the population led to a new social consciousness. So the first book that we're going to talk about here is this book titled Looking Backward. Uh, it's a social criticism. It's, it's satire in a way to kind of expose what is going on currently. And this man, Edward Bellamy, wrote this in 1888, and he writes it from the perspective of someone living in the year 2000, living in a future where there's a cooperative society, where poverty has been eliminated, greed and crime are gone, and this forward-looking um, philosophy inspired a lot of readers to join reform movements to believe that positive change could be made by them trying to improve their local communities. 
there are also going to be a lot of uh, young and educated women um, that are going to uh, be responsible for some of the reform movements that Mr. Copeland has mentioned. Um, one in particular is a woman named Jane Addams. She's going to create something known as the Settlement House Movement. Um, and basically the idea was to create um, some sort of shelter or area where uh, ab uh, immigrants with abject poverty can go and, and receive social services anywhere from uh, tr medical treatment to education to um, basic working skills. Um, and, and Jane Addams is going to successfully uh, educate thousands and thousands of immigrants from 1889 but all the way from the 1920s uh, please highlight her because in particular she's going to be very instrumental in other movements particularly the progressive movement the suffragette movement and the peace uh, the peace movement that will happen in the 1920s so she's gonna kinda be a contemporary figure that is quite powerful um, and she's gonna make her debut so to speak with this whole house movement it founded in Chicago and just like the Second Great Awakening, there was also a social gospel that was getting to be promoted. Protestant clergy really called out on all Christians to really think about the cause of social justice and that as Christians, we should take care of the poor. They preached what they called a social gospel and would apply Christian pr principles to social problems. As in the gospel, it says, what you do for the least of my brethren, you do for me. And this is something that um, they really emphasized so that everyone realized it was the society's responsibility to look after those less fortunate. So while that was uh, a Protestant response to addressing the ills found in industrialized society, uh, Catholicism, uh, believe it or not, actually also had a response. So uh, because a lot of the immigrants coming here um, at the time are Roman Catholic, Catholic churches are going to serve as the the core areas of community. Mm -hmm. A lot of the leaders are going to devote support for old and new immigrants by defending unions such as the Knights of Labor. Um, they're going to help support organizations and lead organizations such as the Salvation Army, which would be an uh, organization that was imported in England in 1879 to provide basic necessities to the homeless and poor while preaching the Christian gospel. Um, but to really underscore this point, um, the, the, the Catholic Church is going to take the side of the poor and working class, particularly unions, from this time all the way through the 1940s and 50s. So we will learn how the Catholic Church kind of takes on this social justice role, especially with the poor, and how it changes over time. Um, families in urban society. Uh, a lot of urban uh, life is going to influence the, the dynamics of the family. It's going to obviously place a lot of strains on parents and children by isolating them. The whole idea of working long hours kind of uh, separates people from having the time to uh, kind of uh, attend to each other in a, in, a, in a manner that you're probably more used to. Uh, as also a result, there's going to be a lack of family support in many areas of the city, and there's going to be a reduction in family size. Uh, children were more seen as an asset on the farm as laborers. But now they're going to be seen as an economic liability in cities. There's more mouths to feed. The, the, the wages cannot possibly be made to justify Housing feeding is another person. Housing is different, difficult. So by nature of your economic situation, people are going to make personal choices that will lead to the decline of 
families in urban areas. And this, of course, will mostly go towards the poor working classes that we're talking about. And we also have a resurgence of the voting rights movement for women. You have, in 1890, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, they find, uh, excuse me, they found the National Women Suffrage Association. And their goal is to secure the vote for women. And while uh, this started about 40 years prior in upstate New York, Wyoming becomes the first state to grant full suffrage to women in 1869. And while many states offer women the right to vote in vocal, local elections, most states do not. And it's not until later on, after World War I, when women finally get the vote, uh, right to vote nationally. And um, most women own property after marriage after some of the things that they are fighting for in this era, where pre previously they were not able to if their uh, husband were to pass away. Right. Um, the temperance movement, another thing that was put on the shelf after when the Civil War springs up, emerges once again. Ills in society, well, there's a cause for it. It's alcohol. Women's Christian Temperance Union is one that is founded in 1874. Absence of alcohol is their goal, encouraging those to take part. 500,000 members in 1898. They even create an anti-saloon league, which is a competing organization, founds in 1893. 21 states are persuaded to close down bars uh, by 1916, and this is the beginning of the movement which leads to the eventual passage of Prohibition. Um, as we know, that was short-lived. So um, as people's lives are changing, obviously our attitudes and our values are going to change as well. So as we go from an agricultural world to a more of an industrial economy, right, from a more of an idyllic vision of Jefferson all the way back in the 1700s to more of what Hamilton envisioned, um, people are going to be affected uh, in all areas of life, education, sciences, literature, arts, and entertainment, particularly in public schools. Um, so elementary schools during this time, especially all since the 1820s, there's going to be a promotion through Horace Mann to have a public school movement. But the question is not so much whether or not there should be schools, but what should be taught in those schools. So elementary schools will taught the famous three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And a lot of these laws are going to require children to attend school. And enrollment will incre uh, obviously increase as well as literacy by 1900, 90%. There will be obviously growing support for tax-supported high schools later uh, after the turn of the century, followed by a, a beginning of a college preparatory curriculum for other people other than the upper class as well. Um, the reason why schools become popular is that now people are beginning to look at schools as a function of not only building a well-informed electorate to go and vote, but also prepare them for the working class. You have to understand that many people at this time are going to look at education as a means to an end for people to access the economy. And some of you and maybe your parents are looking at education that way as well. But schools are always going to have this philosophical debate on are we here to teach uh, the, the values of a human being, uh, make someone holistic, or are we here to teach them a particular skill and join a workforce? So these are the type of questions that begin to arise in the 1800s. And at, at first, it's going to be mostly based on vocation, uh, jobs, mostly based on citizenship, and quote-unquote a common value. And one of the only things that really contributes to the lessening of child labor during this era is when we finally make school mandatory because that was the only means in which you could require students to not be working in a factory or children not to be working in a factory would be to make sure that they're in school and that is why the attendance office gives you such a hard time when you don't bring in your notes because we are legally required to make sure you are here and that is um, 
one of the things that is still present in this day. When we think about higher education beyond K through 12 education, um, there are a number of United States colleges that have increased in the late 1800s. The land grant colleges out west, any A&M college, agricultural and mining colleges, um, they established under the Federal Moral Acts, 1862 and 1890. There are some wealthy philanthropists like the University of Chicago that is founded by Rockefeller. And there are also several colleges that are specifically founded for women. By 1900, 71% of colleges actually admit women who are more than one third of all students. Uh, currently, women are the majority of students in colleges on campuses around the country. But one of the things that changes is really the curriculum. Before this, it was to create an educated, um, not workforce, but elite class of priests and other things like in the Ivy Leagues of Harvard is re reduced acquired courses and added electives. So it's more personal choices to what you want to study. Johns Hopkins University is the first school to specialize in advanced graduate studies. They are emphasizing research and free inquiry and exploring some of life's biggest problems and biggest questions rather than simply um, specific traits to find another work. Uh, work when you get out. So we have the first generation of scholars that are produced during this era, and we start to compete with the rest of the world in terms of intellectual achievements, comparing ourselves to some Europeans, where previously we were more short-term oriented in what our educations were for, specific trades and jobs. So also the, the topic or the discipline of social sciences begin to emerge. Um, in a world that is valuing high efficiency and productivity, that's going to kind of spill into our studies as well. So a lot of people are going to want to apply the scientific method of efficiency and the theory of evolution into education and as well as human affairs. So new fields emerge that are designed to kind of study human relations to kind of ensure a more efficient and productive lifestyle. So things like psychology, sociology, anthropology and political science are going to be big deal disciplines that are happening as well. People like Richard T. Uh, Eli of John Hopkins are going to kind of like attack the popular notion of laissez-faire economics as, and claim it's outdated. He's going to study labor unions, trusts, and other ec existing economic institutions to kind of really understand what are good scientifically proven remedies to these solutions. Not so much from an abstract philosophical standpoint, but go out in the field, so to speak, and observe what is actually happening. Yeah, because as we spoke about, the, the economy has radically changed and it has been great for many people, but there are a lot of unintended consequences. There are a lot of people that have left behind. So studying how this is happening is an effort to improve the overall economy. And one of the other aspects of exploring the economy is by a scholar named W.E.B. Du Bois, and he is the first African-American to earn a doctorate from Harvard. He's the leading black intellectual of the era, and he's unique in a sense because some other contemporaries of his argue that uh, African-Americans need to acquire vocational skills. Booker uh, T. Washington argues this in an effort to advance themselves economically and that it will help them sustain themselves and be the most successful. He argues that that is short-sighted and that ultimately blacks must demand equality, demand integrated schools, and equal access to higher education because in the long run, too long without these things will leave them behind in an uh, ever-emerging and ever-changing uh, American society with the economy valuing education more than ever before. The literature and the arts are also going to transform as well as we emerge into heavy industry. We're going away from this concept of romance to two ideas that will naturally fit into literature and art, and they're called realism and naturalism. 
So realism is a focus on the realities of life, the common people. Gone are the days of like Napoleon on a high horse and portraits of him and his glories of the wars, or even George Washington crossing the Delaware during the Revolution. These are figures of high prestige, and this was mostly found during the early 1800s. Now we're focusing on people that are in the working class, uh, that we're concerned with details or features of people that really express real life. Um, Mark Twain is going to be one of the first great realist authors of his time. He's going to write a novel called The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, 1884. You can also construe this as a satire. Attire. Um, it talks not only about uh, race relations between whites and blacks in the South, but also talks about innocence growing up in, in the rural South. So he kind of does this with a tinge of criticism, and that's why some of you uh, still read him today. Um, naturalism is going to be focusing more on how emotions and experiences shaped humans and their and their ways of knowing. So um, what is the natural progress of our understanding of the world around us? Uh, what are some emotional experiences that inform our activity today? These are things that are part of naturalism. Painting uh, itself has been a another way in which realism has influenced it, and that is subjects and topics that Mr. V mentioned that 40 years prior would have been never considered to be a subject of a painting. Now, scenes of everyday life in poor urban neighborhoods had an aesthetic because it kind of valued and showed the inherent humanity of these people rather than kind of degrading them as unimportant. So when you have this group of social realists that are painting these scenes, it lifts up people that otherwise would have been forgotten and maybe pushed aside in prior generations. In architecture, 1870s, Henry Hobson Richardson changed the direction of American architecture, uh, going from classical Greek and Roman of the early, I guess, antebellum period into more of a medieval Romanesque style of massive stone walls and arches start to become more popular as well. Music also changes. With the growth of cities, you have a demand for musical performances, right? And by 1900, most cities have orchestras and operas, and the entertainment industry is at its very beginnings in this era. Uh, some of the greatest innovators of this era were actually African-Americans in New Orleans who had kind of escaped uh, from um, slavery in previous generations and now are making uh, their cultures much more integrated into society. Jelly Roll Morton, Buddy Bolden, they both expanded the audience of jazz. They combined African rhythms with European instruments and their mixed improvisation with a structured format was incredibly appealing, unique, and something that became incredibly popular for the entire country. Um, the South also came with blues music, which really expressed the pain and the heartfelt emotions that the black experience was forced to go through in our country, coming from slavery to reconstruction and then the Jim Crow South at the, during this period. So the emotion in this music is what made it so special. High literacy due to high enrollment of public schools led to the arrival and the proliferation, I should say, of newspapers. The first newspaper to exceed one million in circulation was a man, uh, by a man named Joseph Pulitzer in his New York world. He's going to become popular because he's going to focus more on sensational stories of crimes and disasters and kind of crusading exotic features on corruption as well as adventurism abroad the United States. 
him and another journalist known as William Randolph Hearst are going to push scandal and sensationalism to new heights or lows, and we will explore more of that with the Spanish-American War in 1898. They're going to be one of the reasons, I would say one of the biggest reasons, for why we entered into this war on behalf of Cuba. Yeah, think about um, tabloids now in terms yeah. of they focus on scandals and not necessarily hard no, no news in a sense. So similar to music and other aspects, we have amusement parks gr growing in the very first time with more and more families being in suburban areas and more and more people in cities you need to create an avenue for them to be productive in their free time rather than allow crime to possibly take place so gradual reduction in the hours that people are working over time because of unions led to more need for free time activities so you have billboards advertising a lot of these things improved transportation allow people to acquire um, or excuse me enjoy these things so the decline of the restrictive Puritan and Victorian values basically where if you weren't working you were doing something wrong and the idle hands where the devil would work wasting time on play was now not necessarily how things thought so theaters were presented where comedies and dramas flourished vaudeville was the most popular which is what we would discuss as silent films now and the national railroad network encouraged people to actually just travel around the world uh, around the country but we also have traveling circuses that now could stop by different towns every weekend this was something that really changed for the first time. Just to add on to that, I mean, the fact that we had the first World's Fair in Chicago in 1893 really significantly uh, changed the way we kind of look at ourselves as a as a culture in with respect to others. And it and transportation uh, really offered the ability to have these kind of um, these these community attractions happening. Spectator sports are also a huge um, avenue in which this was displayed for leisure and amusement. Um, most spectator sports actually originated in the 19th century. Boxing is the most formal uh, example of that, and it really attracted male spectators from all classes. Baseball was very much an urban game in many ways. Stickball was the beginning of that. And basketball was invented in 1891 up in Springfield College in Massachusetts. But football at this moment was primarily a college activity. It was viewed as a way to keep men prepared for war. Uh, Rutgers and Princeton play in the very first game in 1869. And that was an effort. Uh, it was a very physical game. It was much more like rugby, rugby than it was before um, the football that we know of today. And the other way to think of it is um, Teddy Roosevelt eventually had to get involved and inf made them change the rules because too many young men were dying while playing college football. Right. They had to institute the forward pass because they were just running full speed into one another and people were dying. Now, learning about the Gilded Age, we've talked about all the many factors that our new age economy has played. And the concept of the, the gilded nature of our society was there are other things going on underneath the surface. So the politics after the compromise of 1877, the national government settled into kind of a stalemate. There's inactivity. It was much more local politics that drove things. And the failure of politicians to address some of the growing problems related to industrialization and urbanization in these cities led to some of the push back from certain forces and it kind of makes sense in the in the, the scope of like the end of reconstruction right we we had a nation just 
just split apart over heavily politically controversial issue of slavery. So during this time, a lot of the politicians, the prevailing um, focus was just to kind of stay complacent, be conservative, not in terms of politics, but with respect to not changing anything. Mm-hmm. Gone are the days, yeah, yeah you're not going to have the group of radical Republicans. You're not going to have a Charles Sumner or a Thaddeus Stevens during this time. You're going to have people that want to keep the status quo and keep business as business during this time. So the word gilded comes from actually Mark Twain, which is a reference to the superficial glitter of new wealth of this era. It was a a term used to, uh, I guess, be critical of this time. So as I've said before, the two major parties are very interested in making sure their campaign tactics are more geared to mudslinging. They're more interested in party patronage, like Mr. Copeland said about the spoils uh, system, ensuring that their party leaders or party acolytes are now put into positions of power after their elections so that there's almost a tit for tat of competition. It becomes more about the competition and less about good uh, policies that change the systemic problems that we find in society. And a lot of it comes from the belief that government should be limited, and that's part of the essence of our constitution. But this is a little bit more than that. It was the idea of the little more uh, the more that a government did, the worse it would do. So this do-little government was in tune with the two major popular beliefs of the time, laissez-faire economics, but also social Darwinism. So when these are beliefs that are per- um, propagated in society, the American people are voting on the idea of they don't want the government to get involved, leave us alone, let the natural course of things in the economy settle its um, course, and social Darwinism will handle the rest, survival of the fittest, keep up or get out. And the federal courts even narrowly interpreted government's power to regulate business. So businesses were left kind of to do their own thing. And this created great wealth and it limited the impact of some of the few regulatory laws that Congress did pass during this era. And think of it this way, a lot of politicians are focused on getting uh, elected, and that's going to be geared towards what the constituency wants. And we kind of get the sense from the age of Jackson with mass democracy. The focus is not so much on high-minded principles or ideals, it's more about what the people want to hear. So because there's a lot of close elections between 1876 and 1892, it's really going to prevent politicians from both sides of taking super strong stances on issues. Uh, The divided government for all but two years in this era, so there's not going to be a lot of room for anyone to make their mark in terms of policy changes. So there's going to be a big effort not to alienate or push back voters. So get out the vote campaigns are going to be more focused on sensationalist, easy statements that are going to please the crowd. So 80% turnout because of the strong party loyalty of regional, cultural, or religious, or ethnic times becomes the main focus here. And the Republican Party is one that had tried to keep the memory of the Civil War alive as best they could. And this expression of waving the bloody shirt simply means, remember who won the war for you. Remember who kept the country together. It was the Republican Party. And reminding them uh, that who was it that killed Lincoln? It was the Democrats. So appealing to that worked for a short period of time, but it kind of had lost its luster. Their core support came from African-Americans, reformers, men in business, as well as middle-class Protestants, many whom supported temperance and wanted more of a conservative view of things. Uh, they followed the, the general tradition of Hamilton and the Whigs. They became much more of a pro-business, high-protective tariff 
party during this era, and that largely gave rise to the Democrats. The Democrats, as we've learned, um, especially in the South, after 1877, when Rutherford B. Hayes pulled out the troops in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, Democrats will win every Confederate state consistently in what is now known as the Solid South. Of course, we have learned because of voter suppression laws and other ways to disenfranchise black Republicans as well as white Southern Republicans, this is going to remain in effect for quite some time. In the North, the strength came from big political machines such as Boss Tween, as we've mentioned before, to get the immigrant vote. And a lot of these northern Democrats were Catholics, Lutherans, and Jews who objected to the prohibition crusades of these goody-goody two-shoe Protestants that are happening. So we do have this difference between the Democratic Party uh, based still on region, but there's still kind of a united effort at this point. Party patronage is another aspect of the spoil system that has been around for quite some time, but it was never at its height like it was during this era. Neither party had a legislative agenda. The goal was winning. Winning maintains mm -hmm. power. Power maintains control and therefore profit for those that are corrupt. It facilitated corruption. Okay, so if you're there for winning elections, holding office, and then providing government jobs to those that are faithful to you, that's how corruption happens. It facilitates corruption, it makes it easier to do. So historians generally consider this actually an era that is the low point in American politics because of this. It was about winning and not about serving the people. And unfortunately, uh, the string of presidents that are around during this time are also commonly known or comically known as the forgettable presidents. These are presidents that history teachers often ignore, but they're going to be important nonetheless. As you know, Rutherford B. Hayes will be the first among one of these, aka forgettable presidents, but he will be significant in the withdrawal of federal troops during Reconstruction. He will also be very, very much... Um, involved in vetoing restrictions on Chinese immigrants, and he's going to try to promote more of an honest government after the corrupt Grant administration with the Credit Mobile scandal and the Whiskey scandal. James Garfield, uh, Republicans will be more interested in spoils and patronage, patronage than reform. Um, hordes of Republicans will compete for 100,000 federal jobs. People, of course, will be left out outside were bitter. In the summer of 1881, a deranged officer shot Garfield while preparing to board a train. This man was a man named Charles Guiteau. Uh, he will die, James Garfield, 11 weeks later from the gunshot wound, and VP, or the Vice President, Chester A. Arthur, becomes the President of the United States. And because of that, Chester A. Arthur actually ended up proving to be a better President than they expected, but the push from that, a former supporter, a former worker for Garfield, would be someone so enraged that he didn't get an office that he would go and kill the President that was supposed to give him that office because he felt entitled to right. it because of how patronage worked, led to a push to try and reform the way in which we hired people in the federal government. And this is what brought up this th no, what is known as the Civil Service Act, and we'll get to that later, civil service reform, excuse me. So government employees are now going to be hired by their qualifications, imagine that, rather than their political connections. And this was a pushback because of the assassination. This went against Republican doctrine, and uh, excuse me, he went against the Republican doctrine and questioned the high protective tariff, which then led to him being denied the nomination as he completed Garfield's term. We kind of end with these forgettable presidents in the election of 1884. The Democratic nominee and a New York governor, Grover Cleveland, beats out Republican senator and anti-Catholic uh, Senator James G. Blaine from, from Maine. And he's going to be unlike very uh, Gilded Age politicians. He's going to be honest, uh, 
uh, frugal, conscientious, and uncompromising. He's going to win the election thanks to the votes in key states like New York from Catholic voters and immigrants as well. His first term, he's going to kind of advance this agenda uh, based on the tenets of Jefferson. He's going to believe in a limited government. He's going to implement a new civil service system and veto hundreds of false Civil War benefit claims. He will sign into law really two important acts. One is the Interstate Commerce Act of 1887. This is the first time the federal government will try to regulate business practices, something that will be championed by the farmers, the populists, and the union workers. And the second major legislation under his administration is called the Dawes Act, which is going to be a policy that leads to the Americanization of Amerindians by offering them land and citizenship. They're also going to retrieve 81 millions of acres of government land from cattle ranchers and the railroad. So we'll talk more about the Dawes Act and how it kind of failed to adequately give the rights to Native Americans that they what they truly deserved. All right. So as we look at really local governments and some of the states is that they were left to deal with a lot of these growing problems that the federal government was leaving to them. And cities and industrializa industrialization was really leading to a lot of these problems in these cities. So this led to the civil service reform. As we previously mentioned, the outrage over the assassination of the president, they decide to remove party patronage control from giving out these jobs. So the Pendleton Act of 1881 sets up the Civil Service Commission, and this is crucial because it classifies a lot of federal jobs that are going to be given out based on the scores on a simple exam. So still to this day, we have a civil service exam. If you work for the state, if you, any of your family members are police officers, any of your family members are firefighters, um, and any other government jobs in the cities, you have to take these jobs and they hire based on your performance on them. At that time, it only applied to 10%, but now it's almost all of these government jobs need the civil service exam. One of the biggest controversies that do end up coming up in, in politics by the late 1800s is this idea of where to back our money or our currency. It is going to be very debated during the Gilded Age on, on how to expand the money supply. As we're becoming more financially successful or industrially successful, we have to figure out a new way to back our U.S. dollar. Previously, we had a combination of both the gold and the silver to back up our dollar. The problem with that is there's only a finite amount of these things on planet Earth. Earth. The economy needed way more money in order to grow soundly. So people like the debtors, people that owe money to banks, farmers, and startup businesses wanted money to be based mainly on silver. They believed with the expansion of silver, they would borrow money at lower interest rates. They would pay off their loans more easily with inflated dollars. They believed that putting the dollar primarily or only on the gold standard would restrict the money supply or the value of that money, and it would be at the benefit of bankers, creditors, investments, and established businesses. Now, on the other side, you have bankers and creditors, people that money is owed to, investors, and many people that have established businesses. They are much more uh, favoring the idea of standing firm on the gold standard. And, and this is why. You have the situation where the money I have in the bank is $100 million. If you start printing more money, right. that money's not going to be worth the same. Okay, So the gold-backed dollars will hold their value and we talked about earlier this year the danger of inflation, how inflation was the enemy. In this era, it's actually deflation that is the enemy because there's not enough money to go around. The big businesses have so much money in the bank, 
regular people cannot access it. And that's why the farmers and the debtors are arguing for this. So the holders of money understood the US economy and the population grow faster than the money supply. So each of these things will, that each dollar would gain in value eventually. And it opened up that this was possible. So it increased 300% the money supply from 1865 to 1895. And this coincides with the boom in industrialization and our American economy. There's going to be a party that kind of grows as a result of this debate called the Greenback Party. These supporters of paper money will form after Congress withdrew, withdraws all greenbacks from circulation by passing the Specie Resumption Act in 1875. Other things like the demand for silver money, as we've mentioned before, Congress will stop the coining of silver in 1873, but discoveries in the West will push for a renewal of it. In 1878, Bland-Allison Act was passed over Hayes' veto, allowing the limited coinage with a 16 to 1 ratio standard. Well, the tariff issue comes back up again from the beginning of our country. It's always been, are tariffs helpful or harmful to the economy? Well, in the 1890s, tariffs are really providing the majority of federal revenue. Remember, there is no income tax yet. So there's a disagreement that prevailed over the, t the actual tariff level. Eastern capitalists that are primary supporters of the tariffs, the Democrats and farmers are objecting. Farmers are harmed by the retaliation by other nations. We've talked about this from the beginning of the year. And the industry grew rich at the expense of the rural U.S. And this is something that was argued during this era and leads to the growing discontent of this moment. What we see is government corruption that we see in the cities, the money issue we just spoke of, tariffs, and the fact that railroads were growing exponentially and trusts and companies were controlling so much of what was going on in the economy, many politicians start to take small steps to respond because the people are concerned. And ultimately, living in a democracy, if enough people have concerns, they will be heard. But it really takes uh, the form in this third party, this um, creation of what we know as the populace. This is the party that shakes the other two major parties from their lethargy or their ignoring of this important issue. And the election of 1888 is when the tariff question was the main issue. Garfield wins the popular vote but loses the election electorally to Benjamin Harrison. And this is known as the Billion Dollar Congress because the Republicans are controlling the presidency of and both houses of Congress, and it's the most active as it was in years. They passed the very first billion-dollar budget in American history. That's a joke compared to what they passed now. But this is a significant moment because government spending becomes something that is on the minds of people because they feel that government is corrupt and not serving enough of the people. The McKinley Tariff of 1890 raises tax on foreign products to a peacetime high of 48%. That is happening at the same exact time as the Sherman Antitrust Act is put in place, which is one of the most important and first acts to prevent and outlawing combinations that are in restraint of trade and or commerce. So something that is harmful to competition, something that is in restraint to a free market, that's what the Sherman Antitrust is going after. So because we're industrializing on such a high level and we're, and a lot of people are urbanizing, the people that are usually going to be left behind are people out in the rural south as well as the west. And these people are going to eventually form a political party known as the populists. At first, they're going to start with simple farmers alliances who will be elected in four state legislatures, senators, representatives, and governors. And once they see their political success, they're going to meet all together at Omaha in Nebraska in 1892 to create a more sophisticated and organized party platform or a list of goals of what they want to accomplish. 
This is going to be known as the Omaha Platform. Populists were determined to do something about the concentration of industrial economic power in the hands of trusts and bankers primarily. They will call for both political and economic reforms. Politically, the key to them was much like Jackson 70 years prior, was how do we increase the power of the common voter? How do we increase their impact on how the government responds? So one of the things that they directed was, let's come up with the idea of a direct popular election of the United States senators. In the Constitution originally, the United States senators from New York were elected by the State House in Albany. That would be an indirect process. They thought this is where the breeding ground of corruption was. Small closed back door offices where men in cigars and smoke-filled rooms decide who should be the next senator of the United States representing New York. This is not how they wanted it. So it should be open to a popular vote across the state. Early on, this was pushed back, but eventually they get their way. The use of these initiatives and referendums also allow citizens to vote directly on proposed laws. Think of initiatives as like a petition. The way in which you go around school and get signatures to run for school student council. Initiatives are basically, if enough people sign something, the legislature would have to vote for it. Referendums are specific bills that are put to the public that if you want to be passed and you know it won't get passed in Congress in your state, you can get it passed by getting enough people to vote for it on election day. So they're tailoring and making our system more democratic by giving the regular person, the common man, more power at the ballot box. Economically, they're even more ambitious. They're going to unlimit or try to call for the unlimited coinage of silver to increase the money supply or the value or decrease the value of the dollar to help uplift the burden of people that are in debt as well as farmers. They're going to want for a graduated income tax. And the reason for that is at the time there was no way that the government taxed you based on how much money you made. Just on the property. And because of that, they only taxed on property. Yeah. Of course, this is going to hurt farmers who need to make money off of a vast amount of acreage of property. And this is going to benefit a lot of people who own smaller acreages of property uh, who have mansions. They're also going to uh, advocate for public or governmental ownership of railroads by um, our nation. And the reason for that is at some point, railroads or shipping becomes less of a privilege and more of a right. A farmer in the late 1800s cannot compete economically without using the railroad services. And they cannot use the railroad services because those railroads charge an exorbitant amount of rates uh, and they give discounted rebates for more heavy, larger industries and commercialized farmers. And like anyone knows now, shops at Costco or BJ's, you buy in large quantities, you get a discount. That was viewed as unfair by many of these small farmers, and that's why they were pushing for that. So the telegraph and the telephone systems that are owned at the same exact time by and operated by the government by, for the same reasons, it should be a free way in which most people and most um, businesses can benefit. Loans and federal warehouses start to work for farmers. They enable them to stabilize prices for their crops. So if you have one really good year and yields are incredible for your, your harvest, and then next year it's quite poor, you can have a federal warehouse that stores your crops so that this way they don't spoil and you can continue to build off of the progress from the previous year. And the other big thing is the eight-hour workday for industrial workers was something they established and they fought for. So think of the populace as the same concepts of the union members that are fighting for it in industrial society. They are just fighting for those same things for the farmers. 
And they're going to seem exceptionally revolutionary because we won't see such a high uh, energy or political turnout um, until the around antebellum period of the Civil War. And they're going to attack popular concepts of laissez-faire capitalism, but also they're going to try to seek some sort of political alliances with poor whites and poor blacks. So if you're uh, belonging into the upper establishment of this time period, uh, this is definitely a political threat. Just, just to make matters worse, by the election of 1892, James Weaver, the independent from uh, Iowa, is going to be a populist candidate for president, and he will win more than 1 million votes and 22 electoral votes. And although he's not going to win, um, he's going to be one of the few third-party candidates in our history to win a lot of electoral votes. Um, and he's going to be the first one to win in history. Populists, of course, will lose badly in the South. Um, a lot of the Democrats will prey on this fear of uniting with poor blacks and appeal to racism. And there's going to be more strong black disenfranchisement. So the populist movement in the South is going to whittle out. And, of course, there will be a rematch between Grover Cleveland and Benjamin Harrison, which Cleveland will win. And he will be only he'll be the only president to return after losing an election. And that brings us to the turning point in American politics, and that is 1896. So national politics are in a major transition. Both major parties are now threatened by the populace, the threat of them. And William Jennings Bryan is the man from Nebraska that really takes advantage of this. He captures the hearts of all the delegates at the Democratic National Convention with the cross of gold speech. So here is a man who is a populist that the Democrats are so in um, support of at their convention. He is nominated for president for the Democratic Party, not for the Populist Party, but for the Democratic Party. And his speech was condemning the gold standard, talking about how it was a cross, a burden on the American people and the American farmer. The Democratic par platform now officially favors the unlimited coinage of silver, what they wanted for in the platform in Omaha. They wanted a 16 to one ratio, not the market rate for 32 to one. The Democrats adopt almost all of the issues, but especially this leading one of the populist platform, and it creates a fused campaign. But William McKinley of Ohio, who's best known for his support of a high protective tariff that many of the local, uh, excuse me, domestic businesses want, Republicans offer American people the promise of a strong and prosperous industrial nation, and he campaigns to uphold what we have already have. And change is fearful. And that is what brings us to the campaign where we see who wins. Brian is an exceptionally prolific speaker, and he's going to make a nationwide crusade traveling by train, giving over 600 speeches. His energy, positive attitude, and rousing or oratory skills will convince millions to support him. Of course, McKinley will win popular and electoral votes thanks to the support of businesses in the Northeast. And there's even rumors... Uh, med, med, led many workers to fear that they'd lose jobs if Bryan was elected. So these are the reasons why McKinley ends up winning. But we study this election because not so much that the populist movement failed, but was more absorbed, as Mr. Copeland is suggesting, with Brian McKin uh, William Jennings Bryan and the Democratic Party. So McKinley's presidency in many ways is lucky just to take office because the economy began to uh, revive as he took office. And gold was discovered in Alaska, which increased development out west. It increased the money supply because of the gold standard being in place. And this satisfied the wants of the Bryan supporters. Farm prices rose, factory production increased, and the stock market climbed. So in many ways, he was the um, beneficiary of a lot of uh, other events taking place during his presidency. And he was a leader. He took us into the war in Spain during 1898. 
uh, and the Spanish-American War is something that McKinley helped to make us more of an imperialistic world power, expanding beyond our shores. And that's what brings us to the significance of that election. The election of 1896 has a significant short-term and long-term consequence on American politics. The first is end of the stalemate and stagnation of politics that we've seen, as we mentioned before. And of course, the defeat of the Bryan and populist movement will lead to a Republican presidency seven of the next nine elections and both houses of Congress, which will be 17 of the next 20. Republicans will become eventually bumper sticker way of knowing party of business and industry that's still advocated for strong government. Democrats will carry on the defeat as a sectional party of the South and leftover populist sentiments. And unfortunately, the populist demise really declined because their agenda was adopted. What they stood for was no longer something that was unique. So the parties that demand that uh, took on their demands and the reform-minded progressive era ends, uh, but the we see a lot of the things that they wanted come to fruition during that progressive era. The graduated income tax, popular election of senators, they're both added as amendments to the Constitution only a few decades later. And urban dominance becomes the new rule, not the exception, where the election of 1896 was a clear victory for those big businesses Mr. V mentioned, urban centers, conservative economies economics and moderate middle-class values. This was the way of the future for the next several decades. And that was what led Americans to lead and Republicans to win so many offices. The values of modern industrial and urban USA over the rural ideals of the United States of Jefferson and Jackson from 100 years prior become the new norm. And this concludes podcast 6-2. We hope to hear you next week. Shout out to H period. See you later.